Father, we thank you for the grace of God which we experience in our life every day. The fact that we can draw our next breath, that we have the hope not only of uh, your blessing upon us in this life, but of the life to come. Uh, this is all through the grace of God. And Lord, we thank you for forgiveness of sin. And uh, the scripture teaches us that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive. And so, Lord, daily we come to you acknowledging our need of your cleansing. And Lord, we look to you to be present with us in a special way here today. We know that you understand the need of each individual here this morning. And Lord, we know that your hand is upon those who are not here for whatever reason today because of illness or travel. And Father, we pray that um, the Word of God as it is proclaimed here throughout this uh, property this morning in the services and in the various classes, that it will uh, touch hearts according to your plan. And where the Word is being proclaimed around the world today, we ask for your empowerment. We ask that thousands, hundreds of thousands, will enter your kingdom today through the proclaimed Word. We ask you now to bless us here, to guide us in our study, as we submit to you, in the name of Jesus, amen. In our study of the life of Moses, we have followed the course of this man's life through the book of Exodus and somewhat through Leviticus and through the book of Numbers. And last week we turned to the final scroll that Moses wrote, the last book of what is known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And we discover as we look at this work, which he penned in a very short period of time, apparently at the end of his life or very near to the end of his life, when we study it, we discover it was with great urgency that he repeated to the generation that was about to follow Joshua into the land what he himself had received from God on the top of Mount Sinai nearly 40 years before. As I tried to emphasize last time, sometimes we, we need to try to put ourselves in Moses' sandals and try to get a sense of, of what he felt and, and what he thought as he proclaimed the word. I, you know, he wasn't just a mindless being, just writing down, you know, automatic writer, what God gave to him. It, it came through his heart. It came through his soul. And this, this man had tenderly and sometimes with an iron rod uh, led his people for 40 years and gone through all the ups and downs and experienced the tragedies and the triumphs. And he's about to go. And, and he's not going to be able to go into the land. He's got to stand there and look across the land and look at his people, but know that he is not crossing that river and he is not leading his people any further. And so he is turning them over to Joshua, of course, but of beyond that to God. And so what he's doing here is reminding them of the faithfulness of God over these past 40 years. He's also reminding them of the failures that they've experienced in the intervening years. And we, we discover that's the record of the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, as I noted last time, the word Deuteronomy means repetition of the law. It is repeated, but it isn't repeated ad nauseum, you know, just all repetition, no new things. There's a lot of new material in the book of Deuteronomy related to the, to the law and surrounding the law, as well as the final details of Moses' life. In the fifth chapter, we discovered last time that the Decalogue is recounted again, and then he begins an exhortation 
concerning the paramount importance of obedience to God. And that exhortation reaches its zenith in what was called and what is called the Shema. I'd like to read that again because I don't think we can read it any too often. Sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, reading at verse 4. And of course the word Shema comes from the very first word of the passage, which is the Hebrew word Shema, hear, H-E-A-R. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." As we noted last time, this passage is a very direct foundational statement for the whole faith of Judaism. And those last two verses are to be taken metaphorically, but many Jews have taken them literally and literally bound pieces of the word on their bodies or on the door of their house. And you know, they have this sort of this little good luck thing. You touch the little place as you enter your door of your house, and that's kind of a good luck charm virtually. And, and that is, of course, not what was intended at all by this. Uh, what it was meant, of course, was that the Word of God was to be hidden in the mind and the heart of every individual and avidly taught to the next generation. 1,400 years later, when Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, what was the greatest commandment? You remember, as we read from that passage last time, that Jesus quoted the fifth verse of this passage, you shall love the Lord your God, he said, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength or mind. And he said further, this is the great and foremost commandment. But then he added something. He said, and the second is like to it. And he quoted from Leviticus 19.18, where we read, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus was taking that proclamation, taking that proclamation of what it meant to love God, and he was adding to it, or actually helping us to understand the real meaning of it, that it included loving your neighbor as yourself, saying, you can't love God with all your heart if you don't love people. If you don't love people, then you don't really love God. That's, you just can't, because the love of God is so broad, it takes in everyone. And then Jesus made the proclamation to underscore his words. He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, all of Scripture hangs on these two commandments. And of course, these are the words given by Jesus in the New. Thus the New and the Old Testaments hang on the proclamation of these commandments. If we read on today now into the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 10, we read what, what is meant by God, of course, to highlight the Shema. He says in verse 10 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, Then it shall come about, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, 
and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the land, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. So much for this view of God as some kind of a gentle little grandfather who wouldn't hurt a flea. This is the passage, of course, which immediately follows the Shema, and its purpose is to emphasize the importance of the Shema. God was about to bring Israel into a turnkey land. He was bringing them into a land and putting them in, into cities and houses and cisterns and giving them fields and vineyards and orchards that were all in place. It was all there. And in this passage you read, it said even the houses were already filled. It's kind of walking into a house that you've just purchased and, you know, the pantries are full and the cupboards are full and everything's already there. And they didn't do any of it themselves. They were going to be moving from warfare to a settled, profitable lifestyle without a long period of laborious development. They were going to have to go in and rebuild the land or build the land to start with. It was already there. And of course, what you need to remember, or what we all need to remember about this, is warfare in those days was not like warfare today. Warfare today, you go in and fight in a particular area, you pretty much have to rebuild it because everything gets destroyed with everything blowing up. But in those days, it was all hand-to-hand -hand warfare. There were no explosives. And unless you purposely attempted to, to tear down a wall or tear down a house, why the house was unharmed, unless, of course, people were into torching, whatever. But, you know... Things were left alone, and of course, Israel's job was not to come through the land like a plague of locusts. This was not Sherman, you know, marching through Georgia here. <laughs> the, these were simply driving out the people, conquering the land, and leaving everything as possible intact so that they would acquire it as it was. Therefore, the transition from discipline of fighting and from dependence of God for every single, upon God for every single victory to the relative ease and security of living in the land, the transition would be rather abrupt. From warfare to settled life, just almost overnight. What happens, of course, is there's a great tendency to relax and then to over-relax and for complacency and self-indulgence to follow. After all, we worked hard for this. We fought hard and therefore we should be able to just kick back, forget everything and relax and indulge ourselves. God knew human nature. God knows human nature. And therefore God gave the stern warning that we read in verse 12 where he said, Watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. Watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. Premised on this, of course, is the idea that just because they were God's chosen people and had now inherited the promised land didn't mean they could let down their spiritual discipline and all would be okay. I think one of the teachings we discover in Scripture, whether we're reading in Genesis or Revelation or anywhere in between, is that you can't ever let down your spiritual discipline while you're living in this life. 
because the enemy is never on a vacation off somewhere else forgetting that you exist. He's always nearby. And he's always looking for that chink in your armor, that opportunity to launch a beachhead into your life. And of course, as I've emphasized before, and as you know very well, he has an ally dwelling inside of every one of us. It's called our flesh. And he knows how to, to exploit our flesh. And so this was what God was saying to Israel. They needed to practice their faith and love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. And they needed to teach that faith enthusiastically to their children, not in some dry, dull way. Oh, by the way, kids, you better trust God, you know. <laughs> you have to share the faith with others as if it really matters, not only to you, but to them. And that's what he's saying enthusiastically. I mean, teach them in the morning and teach them at night and teach them whenever. Use every opportunity to teach your children concerning God. It was the only way they were going to keep the promised land. They would lose the promised land if they didn't obey in these areas. They would lose his protection. And of course, what was the great temptation? The great temptation was that they would forsake the Lord and chase after the pagan gods of the land in which, of, of which they were going to occupy and of the surrounding peoples. And God said, if you do that, if you forsake me and you chase after these pagan gods, I will wipe you off the map. Now, oh, that's pretty powerful and pretty straightforward. You know, God doesn't pussyfoot around. That is rather obvious. Oh, his mercy is everlasting. But we have to understand his mercy within the context of his justice and with the con within the context of what it means to proclaim faithfully his word in this land. Now, these people had witnessed how God had carried out his promises in the Sinai and ended up burying a whole generation in the Sinai because of the rebellion that happened at Kadesh Barnea. No, God, we will not go into this land even though you have commanded us to and shown us the way. So they well knew that God meant what he said and therefore there should have been no problem with them understanding what God was saying through Moses here. Got it. But as you well know, got it seems to be on slippery ground most of the time. Unfortunately, the time would come when many would believe that they were secure just because the tabernacle was in their midst or later in history just because the tabernacle this glorious building which was built by Solomon stood in Jerusalem or in Jesus day there's the great tabernacle a uh, uh, temple you know when when the disciples said to Jesus behold Lord this great temple they weren't just saying, well, this is great architecture work, isn't it? Uh, they, they were implying to him that this great temple meant that God was here and this nation was secure. And Jesus, of course, you know well said, this building will be flat. And, occur, and it occurred within 40 years of the death of Jesus. In Jesus' day, there were many who believed that just because they were the descendants of Abraham, they had divine approval. Well, let's look at a passage in Matthew, chapter 3. Matthew, chapter 3, beginning at the 
first verse. This, of course, is the account of John the Baptist preaching. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sin. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. <laughs> and you can read more into that, I suppose. A lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees were literally rockheads. So it, but you know, he wouldn't have said that if that hadn't been a characteristic of the Jewish people. In fact, that's why they didn't believe that they could succumb to Babylon. That's why they continued to resist. That's why even when the prophet Jeremiah said to them, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar because you will serve him, they resisted anyway. And the city was destroyed along with the great temple of Solomon in 586 BC. They refused to believe that anything serious could happen to them because the temple was there and they were the descendants of Abraham. It's funny how people often, and, and we're not, of course, innocent uh, from this, will forget the bad things of the past and remember only the good, and as a result, build our philosophy or our theology upon that. And that's what they were doing, because obviously at the time, Nebuchadnezzar had already been to Jerusalem two times and captured the city and carried off many into captivity. So why should they think that he wouldn't come back again and they could get away with rebelling this third time? Why could they think that? Because they were very short-sighted and they didn't want to believe that. They wanted to believe that they would be secure and it was all right to rebel. The parallel of all of this to our day, I think, must be acknowledged. Many in the churches of today are trusting in church membership or participation in church rituals to make them secure relative to eternal life, to guarantee heaven to them. I, I'm a member in good standing of so-and-so church and, and I go to the meetings and I participate in the ordinances, whatever they might be, and therefore I must be okay with God without ever coming to a true repentance of sin personally. I mean, what did John the Baptist say to the Pharisees and Sadducees? If you're coming to me, you better come with fruit showing that you have truly repented of your sin. True repentance is absolutely essential. And then following that must be an expression of the genuine love of God and of people. If not, a person is truly deluding himself if he thinks that he is right in the eyes of God. Matthew chapter 5, let me read 
at the end of that chapter, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? For do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, that is, of course, in your standing before God, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it's quite important to understand that as Jesus took the, the key passage of the Shema and attached to it Leviticus 19.18, that this was not just a random exercise on his part, but was a statement of what it really means to love the Lord your God with all your, whole, your heart, soul, and might. And that means that that must extend to loving your fellow men and women in the sense of being concerned about their eternal souls and praying for them in whatever way, ministering to their needs as God would open doors and pave the way. If we go back now to Deuteronomy, we discover that chapters 7 through 11 of Deuteronomy comprise a call to faith and obedience within a particular framework, and that framework is the anticipated conquest of the land of Canaan. So this faith and obedience is to be part of the buildup. Uh, today, of course, if we're going to go somewhere and we're going to have a war, we have to have a military buildup. We call up troops, we, we get weapons lined up, we get them transported. But what Moses is saying that you need more than that. You can't just call up the troops and get your weapons ready. You have to have a call to faith and obedience. You have to become spiritually equipped as well because what's about to happen is not purely a, a physical conquest of a land, it's a holy conquest. And we have to try to understand the, conque the conquest of Canaan within those terms. It wasn't just another battle. It wasn't just another campaign. It wasn't just one people defeating another people and acquiring a bunch of dirt someplace. It was actually a God-ordained holy war of creating a land which would be the base from which the word was to be proclaimed in the ancient world. So let's read the first, seven, or first 11 verses of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering it to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. But thus you shall do to them 
You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand, to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. But he repays to those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandments and statutes and judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. In this passage, God is calling his holy people to holy war. Israel was poised on the plains of Moab, ready for the invasion that was about to begin within a few weeks. Certainly there was planning going on. Certainly uh, Joshua was trying to line up the troops and make sure weapons were available. These things were happening, most likely. But what we discover in this passage is, is a is a statement relative to preparing the heart for what was to happen and the consequences if God's commands were not fulfilled. In this passage, we find conditional clauses in both verses 1 and 2. These conditional causes, clauses were, first of all, to encourage Israel. It says, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land, not if, when. It's not a doubtful thing. You're going into the land, you're conquering the land. That's a sure thing. And further, to remind them of their responsibility to be obedient to God. And so we summarize from these verses these words, when Yahweh your Elohim shall bring you into the land and clear away many nations and deliver them before you, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall utterly destroy them. God tells them they're to show the Canaanites no mercy. They're to make no covenant with them. And they're not to intermarry with them. Now that rests really heavy on us, I think, today. Because God is demonstrating, her, her, you know, in our, uh, what do we call it, uh, country where everything's got to be you know, politically correct, you know, in our politically correct country, God is the epitome of intolerance here. I mean, doesn't God understand? How can he be so intolerant? How can he say to them, you must wipe them out? And of course, we understand this to mean men, women, and children. In our days, when you can have a major inquisition in the military simply because a bomb accidentally dropped on a hospital in an attack, you can imagine what this would sound like today. Well, why is God demanding such intolerance? Is, he, is it because he has no mercy? 
Uh, is it because he simply doesn't understand the fact that, you know, we're dealing with human beings here? <laughs> well, you know, obviously the answer is no. But let's, let's look at the two answers which are given in the passage. First of all, we can derive from this that if Israel allows the pagans who are living in the land to survive and to continue to live in the land, and if they coexist with them and they intermarry with them, the Israelites will be perverted to worship the pagan gods. That is not an if, that is a sure thing. It's like the old illustration that you've heard before and I've mentioned before. How much ink does it take to make a glass of pure water no longer pure? Not much. How much pure water does it take to make a glass of ink pure? A great deal. And so what is happening is they may be a holy people and they're receiving the holy land, but if they leave within the holy land, those that will tempt them to sin, they will be perverted. Period. End of discussion. It's not like maybe they will be or they can handle it because they're mature. No. And God, as a result, will be forced to destroy them. Now, let me turn to a passage in the New Testament. I, I think you're pretty familiar with it, but in, for, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this talks about similar things within the church. And, 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 of course, divine principles and divine laws are always divine principles and divine laws. Because as we read in the Psalms, forever God's word is settled in heaven. It's the eternal word. And so as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, we read, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now, that is not a qualified statement. That is an absolute statement. In any way by which you are forced to be bound with unbelievers, as a believer, you're not to do that. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship have, has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is not a call to monasteries because we all live in the world. And we have to associate with the world. We have to work in the world. And, and God knows this. And it's not what this is saying. What this is saying, we are not put ourselves in any kind of a legal, spiritual combination that binds us in a situation that will cause us to be polluted and the name of God to be defamed and defiled. Which, of course, means marriage. Uh, it, it might mean partnership in a business there are many different ways by which we can cause the name of God to be defiled by creating a legal bound, binding or a spiritual binding, which of course is more the consideration here. It's the spiritual situation that's root at, of this whole thing. And, and so obviously if, if they bring the pagans in and intermarry with them and fellowship with them as if it's no big deal, 
they are going to suffer. The pagans are maybe here and there now and then might be converted, but they are not going to convert all these pagans and be unaffected. They are in effect going to be torn down in their faith rather than converting the pagans. Dealing with the pagans according to God's mercy and justice is more of a witness than patronizing them and treating them as if it's okay. You know, we understand you're just a pagan, that's all. You don't know any better. And that's what God is saying here. The scripture teaches us that there is none righteous, no, not one. We are, by nature, all prone to evil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are arrayed against us, and we can serve God only if we intentionally resist these forces of destruction and intentionally seek and obey God. We, we can't just say, well, because I'm in church, I must be holy. We can sit in church, you can sit in this class, or I can sit in that service in there, and if the message and the word just goes, you know, like this, I'm not any more holy and I'm not any more strong. I've got to take the word in, I've got to make it a part of the warp and woof of my being. As James says, I can't just be a hearer, I've got to be a doer of the word, I've got to practice it, I've got to make it real in my life. If I don't do that, I'm going to be overwashed by the world because it is more powerful than I am. Victory over the world only comes through the Spirit of God. He is the only one who has the strength to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And any person who thinks it's okay, I can toy with fire and not get burned, I can, you know, marry this unbeliever and hopefully I'll convert this unbeliever down the line or some other such thing, you know, God never talks about uh, evangelistic marriage in Scripture. God never talks about binding people together for the purposes of evangelism in a situation whereby the name of God can be defamed. What, what that means is, of course, obviously many of us may have been in such a situation at some time. Well, you know, it's nothing we can do about that, but we can move on from this point and, and you know, apply it in our lives as it, however, it, uh, however it fits. Moses gave this, this admonition with great vehemence because he had heard these words from God and he had received them in a powerful venue. He had come down off the mountain and he had seen the, the Israelites down there worshiping this pagan god and he was so angry he shattered the stones. And then God appeared to him and God said, Moses, and Moses says, God, show me yourself. And God says, come up here. And he put him in the cleft of the rock and he went by and showed him his afterglow. And then he said to Moses, cut out two new stones. Come back up the mountain and I will write the Decalogue a second time. Let me read from that passage because it really helps us to underscore why Moses is so adamant about what he is saying here in Deuteronomy. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor many of the nation, nor among the nations. <laughs> nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am about to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. 
but rather you are to tear down the altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invites you to eat his, of his sacrifice. And you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten images. And that's straight from the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. And he was simply saying, this is how to avoid it. You've got to live holy to me, not as monks, not as anchorites or hermits, but in your spirit, you've got to be dedicated to me and resist the evil. And the best way, of course, to resist the evil is not to hobnob with the evil, one, evil ones in the sense of fellowshipping with them and bringing them around you as if it's no big deal. He's not saying, of course, that they should have no contact with the Gentiles because you can't be a witness without contact. But that contact has to be consistent with the faith that's being proclaimed. You have to live a life of obedience and a life of worship in such a way that the people out there looking in say, whoa, that's how you really tr believe in God. And this is what he does if you do. Contrast that with their gods. Their gods were capricious. Their gods were, were, were vile. You never knew when the God was going to zap you, no matter how you'd appease the God. And to run into a God that kept his word, that was absolutely consistent, what a testimony. But when they start intermarrying and, and playing around like Solomon, marrying all those wives, and, and the scripture tells us that he began, you know, he built altars to the, to the pagan deities of his wives and even worshipped at them. What kind of a testimony could Solomon be at that point? None. Secondly, we discover in this passage another reason why God seems so intolerant here. And that is, we read down in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 7, that God repays those who hate him and he destroys them. And it says he destroys them to their face. God doesn't come around the backside, you know, and undercut them. God stands face to face and says, you deserve, deserve destruction. Every man, woman, and child will stand before the Almighty one day. And the question will be, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? The question will not be, have you done some good things? You know, did, did you refrain from kicking your dog? You know, did you help that uh, little old person across the street sometime in your life? Those are not the questions. The question is, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Well, of course, God already knows. But the person must, in effect, confess before God that he's worthy of God's condemnation. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 15 for a moment, we read a passage which I think is salient to the point here. Genesis 15, verse 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. There is the expression of the mercy of God. 
the people were worthy of destruction at that very hour. But God said, I will give them 400 more years to turn from their wicked ways to the truth. And then I will draw the line. God knew, of course, that they would continue in their rebellion and disobedience and that they would continue following their vile gods because they loved their vile gods. And so now the hour of reckoning has come. It's like today. No, no matter how much we might say, oh Lord, give us more time that more might be saved, the hour of judgment will come when the hour of judgment comes. It's been foreordained by God. And I don't think, you know, everything's going to get to be really hunky-dory and then we just kind of slide into the hour of judgment. I think it's going to fall like the sword of Damocles. Whack. At any moment, Christ will return and the events spelled out in Revelation will begin to unfold in rapid order. And to use a worldly expression, the chips will fall where they may, you know. There are those that are going to have heard and rejected. There are going to be those who have never heard. I mean, it's just the way it's going to be. I think that in the end, just before that, the word is to be proclaimed worldwide. And, and what Wycliffe Bible translators and all the other missions are endeavoring to do is all part of that unfolding. But at the same time, there will be many who say, absolutely, I don't want anything to do with this, God. And they will die in their sin and their rejection. And so did the Canaanites. God had said in Genesis 6-3, speaking of mankind just before the flood, he said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever. God is patient, but there's a point at which he knows judgment must come because further mercy will yield no fruit in terms of obedience to God. And so God is saying, if it is my choice to drive these people out of the land, you must drive them out of the land, you must wipe them out, you must not intermarry with them because who are you to allow those people to remain whom I have said are to be driven out? Who are you to do that? None of us can possibly demonstrate more mercy than God. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, explains the application of this to us. He says, The people of these abominations must not be mingled with the holy seed, lest they corrupt them. Thus we must deal with our lusts that war against our souls. God has delivered them into our hands by the promise, Sin shall not have dominion over you. You see, we have victory. It's been handed to us. Sin shall not have dominion over you. But of course, what happens is we don't take that dominion, right? We often, as Matthew Henry says, unless it be our own faults. If sin has dominion in our lives, it's because we have chosen to allow sin to have dominion, not because it must have dominion, because God has given us the victory. So he goes on to say this, let us not make covenants with them, meaning our sins, comparing our sins to the Canaanites, nor show them, our sins, any mercy, but mortify and crucify them, our sins, and utterly destroy them. So the parallel is obvious. The Canaanites are, in effect, uh, metaphorical for our sins. 
and wiping out the Canaanites was a picture of what has to happen for us. God must, through the process of, of our walk with Him, mortify our flesh and, and bring us to a place where more and more sin is eliminated from our lives. It, of course, won't be totally eliminated, and neither were the Canaanites uh, during the course of our lives. But one day we will stand before God clean. But the process is a painful one in this life. Well, I think that before we start talking about who these people were, who are the Girgashites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all the others, we don't have time to develop all of those, so we'll start with that next week and talk about who these people were and what were the long-term implications of all of this because they do not wipe out or drive out all these people. They do make a covenant with them. They do intermarry with them. And what is the implication of that? 